can't judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Okay. <laughs> We're counted in now. We're good. We're good. Let's get started. So what do we what do we talk about today? What's what's life been like, Kim? For me, kind of terrible. I've been on jury duty since mm. Juneteenth, the week after Juneteenth. So the twenty first. I've been on jury duty since then. And like in the beginning I was like very optimistic and like, yeah, justice. And now I'm like, oh my god, end it. End <laughs> it. It's a medical case, and that's all I'll tell you, but there's just like constant people coming in to talk about like spines and shit and i'm just i'm very much over it i've already made up my mind so like i have always liked jury duty but i've only had grand jury duty i had one case but it lasted like half a day before they were like nah this isn't worthy of being in court and having a jury decide but otherwise i was on like grand jury for months and i love that i you're the third person that's like i love jury duty i had grand jury and i'm like i don't know how i got that because i don't either i just did i would love it it's the luck of the draw like i've been called for grand jury three times what once in massachusetts twice in new york well, once was for New York and the other was for federal. So oh, so fancy. Yeah, so fancy. The federal one I didn't get called and that's when I served that half-day case. Mm-hmm. Or the no, the New York one is when I didn't get called and I served the half-day case. The federal one it was like every Monday for 4 months and it was awesome. I think you only had to do it for 2 months, but I signed up for a second round because I was like this is cool. <laughs> But it was one day a week, so it's a yeah. little bit different than five days a week and missing all your work. Mm. For me, it was a I'm bonus. Not, I'm not missing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably terrible. I'm, I have so many emails that I'm not looking at. I'm going to forget how to do my job. But it's, it's a nice break, but I'm over leaving my house every day. I'm over. Oh, yeah, because you've been working from home. Yeah, so I was like, oh, good, I get to go out in the world and do stuff. Now I'm like, oh, my God, can I come home? Can I just stay home? <laughs> pants again no see i am looking forward to the day when i can like return to working in person i'm doing summer classes online again and they start they actually start tomorrow so we are recording this a little bit in advance so uh, this episode's going to come out in august but it's still july at this moment and yeah i'm i i mean i'm looking forward to my summer classes they'll be fun but i am honestly i can't wait till the fall when i get to actually see what students look like instead of just these black screens with their names on them. I was going to say they have to have (laughs) their cameras on. Well, not even cameras, like real life faces. (laughs) Yes, they need to have their real life faces on. (laughs) They cannot hide behind little black boxes. What if they all just like came and like put their hoodies on and like closed it? And we're like, no, thanks teach. Honestly, I would give them more credit for showing up with like a black piece of construction paper in front of their (laughs) face than that. (laughs) Well, I mean... It's different, right? It's going to be better. To, it's got to be easier to teach in person. You can, like, gauge reaction. And- yeah, for me, it definitely is. It's it's more involved. You know, it, it's probably different from the student's perspective when they're online. But for me, I can't, I can't see how they react. I can't see, do I need to repeat something? Do mm-hmm. I need to clarify something? When I'm in class with them, I can look at their faces and be like, yeah. okay, I need to 
talk more about this. Mm-hmm. There's some confusion. Like I can just read that on their faces. Yeah. I can't do that when they're just black boxes with yeah. names. So, but you know, I'm getting ready for summer school. It's starting. It's starting tomorrow and uh, lasting for a few weeks there. And I got two classes, so we'll see how they go. One meets every Thursday, and the other one's not going to actually have meetings, so that's going to be weird. But wait, uh, what? How? It's an asynchronous course, so I've made like lecture videos and mm-hmm. I've set up a syllabus and said, "Hey, do this in week one, do this in week two. But I didn't know that not, was a thing. Yeah, yeah, we have asynchronous summer courses, and basically the students are a lot more on their own mm-hmm. uh, unless they reach out to me, so I hope they do. Yeah, but yeah, whereas the other class we're going to meet on Zoom once a week, so yeah. Anyway. That's why we're recording this episode now, so we can kind of get that <laughs> done with. But one before you finish jury duty, so you can uh, go traveling, right? Gonna... I'm going to go see my mom. I'm going. Yes. So I booked a ticket. So if this case isn't over by Friday, then that's like. Oh. There was already someone from my case that's been dismissed because he was like, I'm starting classes and I have to go. Because it was supposed to end a week ago and they just keep stretching it out. But yeah, so like I'm I'm leaving Friday, so mm-hmm. I'll I'll either have to be dismissed or the case will be over. Well, I'm fingers crossed Wednesday. it's over. Yeah, I'm hoping Wednesday. I would like to issue a verdict on it. Ooh, like when it's over, I can like dish all the things, right? Or maybe not. I don't know. I don't know the rules for that. You'll never know anyone listening. <laughs> We're not going to share them on the pod anyway. <laughs> no, I will tell you in person, though, because th- there, there's some tea in this case that I'm oh, goodness. looking forward to spilling. But uh, I do want to issue a verdict because you're ready. Justice and capitalism and shit. But oh. um, yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about this episode, actually. Yes. Right. What are what are we covering this week? So today we're going to be discussing Centoya Brown. She's now a 33-year-old woman who was arrested for murder when she was only 16 years old. She was basically a little baby. Yeah. I mean, 16 is a minor in any state that I know of. I, I know that the, the jury in her case did not agree with her plea of self-defense, and so she was convicted. Speaking of jury duty, right? <laughs> <laughs> that case would have been... That's too much power. Like, I don't think I would want to be on a case like that. Honestly, though, you're the kind of person she would probably need on a case like that. Yeah, I, but I wonder, like, if there's one person who agrees with her and is fighting so hard and everyone else just wants to get back to their shitty jobs, like, do you listen to things? Uh, you know? Listen all, go read, watch 12 Angry Men. I've one never person seen can that. change their mind. I've never seen that. Yeah. Maybe. Check it out. Maybe. It's good. I mean, this not really about women in any case, but <laughs> <laughs> while it may be unknown if she truly acted in self-defense, the fact is that she was a child forced into sex trafficking. Yeah, Brown's conviction and her subsequent release has led to her speaking out about the criminal justice system and working to change it. But uh, I do want to point out as a heads up before we really dig into the meat of this episode, there will likely be some triggering topics in this episode in including domestic abuse, rape, and underage sex trafficking. So take your, you know, your own self-care into consideration before continuing to listen. (laughs) 
Centoya Brown was born January 29th in 1988 in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. She was born into pretty rough waters. Her father wasn't in the picture. Her mother, Georgina Mitchell, was an alcoholic who admits to drinking heavily and doing drugs all throughout her pregnancy. Brown was later put up for adoption because of her mother's drug use. She went to a family friend named Elinette Brown. Elinette's husband at the time was not completely on board with this choice. He was an alcoholic. He had anger issues. Centoya later confessed to her adoptive mother that he had been sexually abusive. This was the catalyst for her running away the first time. So Brown actually spent time in DCS facilities during her teenage years after committing, quote, crimes against a person and crimes against property. What does that even mean? I mean... Loitering could be crimes against property. Maybe it's not specific because she was underage. I don't know. Okay. I'm not really sure, but that was... That was what I found. (laughs) She escaped DCS facilities multiple times, actually, and eventually ended up on the streets, and she was only 16 years old. Well, on the streets, she meets and ends up dating. We'll put that in air quotes. Huge air quotes. Yeah. uh, A guy named Garion Cutthroat McLaughlin. Not to make light of a situation, but damn. Like, never befriend anyone with the name Cutthroat. Never date anybody with the name Cutthroat. It's a big mistake. Huge. Huge. Yeah. So they lived in a hotel, and Brown supported them both through involuntary prostitution. Remember, she was still very much a minor. She also (laughs) states that McLaughlin threatened, beat, and raped her on multiple occasions. That same year, 2004, Brown was convicted of killing Johnny Allen after he took her to his home. Again, she was only 16 years old. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to assume he didn't know that. They probably lied about that. But also, like, dude, she probably didn't look that old. I'm going to put up a picture on the Instagram because I 100% think he knew. She looks like a baby. Yeah. Like chubby little cheeks. Like she looks like a child when she's 16. And she is, but she looks like maybe she's 13 even. Wow. She looks very young. So Brown says that she actually shot and killed Alan in self-defense and fled the scene in his truck. She took some guns. She took some money and she left. She served 15 years for this and was released from prison on August 7th, 2019. Now, I remember reading, like, I was looking up some notes about her and stuff in advance, and, you know, there was a bit about whether she just did this to rob him Mm -hmm. or whether he was even awake when it happened. But honestly, I think... I don't know. There's just so much more that can be talked about in this. I don't want to spoil if we've got this ahead in the notes, but... Yeah, so much. Do you remember this case at all? I honestly don't. Um, I mean, we're talking 2004, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was a year out of college, maybe, at most. I was living in Boston, basically trying to work to survive and pay my rent. But Have it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, How about I, you, though? I mean... Well, I was... I just graduated high school. I don't even think I knew the news existed then. <laughs> it was all like, whatever. Now that's what I call music CD that was out that I was probably into. Um, I Kid don't, bops. 
kid. No, listen. <laughs> I was a cool teenager. I wasn't listening to kid pop. Listen, you went to Catholic school. That already negates some of your coolness. I, I think we discussed this last time. <laughs> New York City public school is not the same as like out of state public school. New York City public school is fucking rough. So yeah, I went I to mean, Catholic school. I suppose it depends on your neighborhood too. It does. So yeah. Let's, let's, but, uh, you know, Williamsburg those, wasn't always sunshine and roses and rich and hipsters. people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like yeah. I went to private school, but we didn't have kids, Bob. There was dark <laughs> shit going on there. All right. All right. Fair, fair, fair. <laughs> but I don't recall this case. Like I don't, I think the first time I heard about it was like on Twitter when she was being released. Like, I didn't know anything about this case. And I was kind of shocked because we're like roughly around the same age. Like she was in jail and I was like going to prom. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I don't even think I knew about this case until you brought it up and suggested it for an episode of the podcast. Mm -hmm. And then I looked into it and I was like, oh, damn. Yeah, we got to cover this. (laughs) Because I I don't know, to me, like there is a perception and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but I feel like through the 2021 lens, mm-hmm. yes. we look at this a lot differently mm-hmm. than we would have in 2004. Like, you know, if you're, if you're a jury post me to movement, uh, I think there's a lot more that you would take into consideration and mm-hmm. probably a lot more the lawyers would cover, but I, I oh, don't yeah. know. To me, it seems like after I was researching, it seemed like the, that people thought that the case was cut and dry. Yeah. Right. Oh, she was a prostitute. She murdered a John. She robbed him. Yeah, it's like simple robbery. And like she nothing. admitted to killing him. Yeah. That wasn't ever in question. No, it never. It was just about the reason behind it and the, the motivation, right? So according to this 2016 article I found in the Tennessean, which is a newspaper from Tennessee. <laughs> As one would suppose. As one would allege, you know. Uh, Alan's relatives asked the judge to punish Brown as severely as possible Randy Allen, the victim's brother, said, I pray that Centoya will never be free into society again. During the trial, the newspapers all reported that the prosecutors argued that Brown killed Allen as a thrill and to steal from him. I'm not going to lie. Like, if I were the relative of someone who had been murdered, yeah. I, I might find it difficult to just be like, yeah, you know what? She had a reason to kill my yeah. loved one. So I get that. I get their perspective for mm-hmm. sure. You know, uh, she was painted as a rebellious runaway and someone who was hell-bent on being a menace. So this perception of her in the eyes of the family who had lost their loved one, of course they're going to say, like, I hope she gets the fullest sentence. I hope she is punished to the fullest extent of the law. Like, I get that. I do, But I I understand now there is a lot more to this story that probably wasn't brought up in the trial. I pray that I'm never, like, on the other side of it where I'm, you know, the victim's family because I don't know if I could separate. Because, like, I can see this case and say, okay, like, there were, they weren't necessarily good people on both, like, good or bad people. There were people in terrible situations. And I can understand that. But, like, if it were my loved one that was killed, would I even look past to see, like, how this girl ended up there? Would I just be like, this girl murdered my favorite person? Like, fuck her. Like, you know, I don't know difficult. anyone from that perspective, but I Me do either. know someone who, um, who's, I'm trying to keep this as vague as possible because I don't want to, like, 
put out any names or anything, mm-hmm. but whose loved one had killed their partner. Um, and they actually very much like separated themselves from the from their loved one after mm-hmm. this fact like and, and i'm talking about a close yeah relative it wasn't like a second cousin something something it was you know a very close relation and when they found out what this person had done mm-hmm. they very much separated themselves from from them as a killer mm-hmm. so i think it is possible to recognize when someone does something wrong that they were at fault mm-hmm. but the problem was in this situation that alan was never painted as having done something wrong in this situation True. or and not well enough anyway no and i mean he does you never really want to blame the victim but like there there are things that led to what happened and honestly and and this is part of you know i'll i'll say this again a little bit later on but mm-hmm. it Things are not so cut and dry. They're they're not always black and white. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the the truth of this trial. Like, let's kind of go through the steps. We talked about who she was, what her her situation was, what the perception of this case was. But let's let's dig into some of the information we've learned since. Right, so I learned a little bit about uh, Tennessee and their laws. Um, it's kind of fucked up there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Yeah, let's not judge based on geography. But. I've been to Chattanooga <laughs> and it was lovely, but I've only passed through. Living there might be. It feels well, like they kind of set people up to fail. So there's this law. Tennessee, all the penalties for first-degree murder, even in juveniles, they sentence them as adults. So it's equivalent to a death sentence, whether a social death sentence or a physical one. In Tennessee, the only options are the death penalty or life without parole. So I learned this thing about Tennessee law. So in Tennessee, the only options are the death penalty or life without parole. So a person must serve a life sentence requiring 51 to 60 calendar years, And they sentenced juveniles as adults. So this is a law that was implemented in 1989. Um, It was aimed to be tough on repeat offenders. I'm sorry, repeat offenders for first degree murder? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I guess that's why she, quote unquote, only got 51 years Mm -hmm. instead of the 60? So like repeat offenders for first degree murder who are also juveniles who were charged as adults. But see what this what you're saying about this law means that now there's no chance for repeat offenders because exactly. they're putting people away from I mean, granted, I don't wanna give people another chance to murder mm-hmm. someone. That's I, I get that. Yeah. But when we're talking about juveniles and the juvenile reform system, I just don't think we can say that like everyone fits under category A. Exactly. And I think that that's what happened. She was lumped into a category and it just didn't end out right for her. And I honestly think her upbringing played a role in where she ended up. You know, I mean, Brown came from a long line of abuse and trauma. Her biological mother, Georgina Mitchell, said that both her own mother and her maternal grandmother, so Mitchell's mother and Mitchell's grandmother, were suicidal drunks. So there was clearly some substance abuse yeah. issues in this family. Yeah. So Mitchell was a product of rape. She grew up not knowing who her father was. And then she was molested by a family friend. 
Her mother was uh, allegedly aware of the abuse. So again, this is this is Brown's mother. This is and, Brown's biological mother, yeah. And what she had gone through prior to Brown ever being born. Uh, Mitchell also admits to smoking crack and drinking heavily during her pregnancy with Centoya. And this was noted by Brown's lawyers because as an infant, she showed signs of fetal alcohol syndrome, which, you know, just for those who aren't familiar, is brain damage that can impair one's reasoning skills, reduce their ability to control impulses, rapidly change moods, produce poor social skills, and cause difficulty identifying consequences for one's choices. So there's a lot of decision-making issues Mm -hmm. that come with this fetal alcohol syndrome. And it's important to remember that these aren't excuses for Brown's wrongdoing, but they are strong indicators of how she got there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're not saying like, oh, anybody who has fetal alcohol syndrome should Mm -hmm. be excused from murdering. Like, absolutely not. That's... (laughs) That's not the, the goal of this podcast. Not but at all. What we're trying to do is say that, that her sort of big reputation of being this murderous thief mm-hmm. is a lot more complex. Yeah. It has a lot to do about what, where she came from. This history of trauma that goes through her family. Yeah. She sees that happen in her new adoptive home that's supposed to be safe for her. Now there's trauma and abuse happening there. So, of course, she flees. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't make... she. She has a history of not being able to identify consequences or make good choices. So she meets up with this cutthroat dude. And of course, she's going to like do what he says. Like she's coerced into so many things. You're a 16 year old girl. Someone's showing you love and affection Mm -hmm. in ways that you haven't necessarily experienced before. But there's still an underlying fear of what the consequences are if you don't sort of follow along with mm-hmm. them and and whether they'll their love is conditional or not. And obviously, in this case, it was. Yeah. I mean, he ended up trafficking her. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty clear that Brown is a clear victim of sex trafficking. I mean, she was 16. Uh, the age of consent in Tennessee is 18. So reporters and lawmakers and everyone calling her a sex worker it it just doesn't fit the narrative it doesn't work she was way too young to make any call like that but let's let's be honest like why would reporters call brown a sex worker because it sells the papers well there's that but i mean i'm imagining what would happen if a 16 year old white girl was in the same situation she wouldn't be well you know what that was a quick no that was very quick. <laughs> she, um, she very she much might could be. be. She yeah. could be trafficked very easily, right? That's not the issue. But no. she would be painted much more as a victim of oh, sex absolutely. trafficking. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's one of those key points that in 2004, juries may not have had to consider mm-hmm. that a jury today might think differently about or at least have some members who thought differently about. I I would hope. I would hope. I mean, I definitely think that there's a whole, I think about, you know, you see this brown girl and brown in name and skin tone. And it's like, oh, she must be guilty. Yeah. I mean, especially in Tennessee, I don't think they have a really good, uh, actually, I don't know. Are they a little racist there? I feel like they're a little racist there. Their proximity to Florida. I think, this country in general state, whatever state you're in is a little bit racist. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the media referred to her as a teenage prostitute, not as, you know, an underage trafficked girl. 
And they claim that she knew exactly what she was doing. So the media paints a picture for us. And Mm. that's where a lot of the perception of guilt comes from. Yeah. Actually, in an article with CBS News, Brown speaks of not understanding that she was uh, a sex trafficking victim until she was in her late 20s after she'd been in prison. She says, you know, of course I let him manipulate me into doing this. I thought I was doing something for someone I figured was my boyfriend. And that wasn't necessarily the truth. So she did come to learn it with age and with time and, and understanding of her situation. But... At 16, you can be you want to that a lot love. Of things. Yeah. You want that affection. You want someone to, to show that they care. And she didn't have that from other areas. Mm-hmm. So she took it where she could get it. And unfortunately, yeah. it led her to being trafficked. So this kind of behavior is common with traffickers. They game and they groom the victim until they earn their trust. And then they use that trust to manipulate them. We're not really going to get into uh, great detail, but grooming is when someone builds a relationship, trust, and emotional connection with someone so they can manipulate them, exploit them, or abuse them. Yeah, and maybe maybe down the line we'll do an episode on grooming in general and and the effects that it has on women because... We should. It's a really in-depth topic. It really is. I think it it deserves its own own Mm -hmm. episode to a certain extent because there's so much that you miss if you're the one being groomed. Like you don't recognize yeah. certain things if you're being groomed for it. And, you know, luckily Cynthia Brown was able to recognize these things after the fact, mm-hmm. and, you know, and try and speak up about them as well. But in the moment, and especially without any other positive role models, what is she going to know yeah. or do? And it just took like a little bit of age. She yeah. learned it when she's like in her twenties. Cause when you're 16, You know, a lot of things happen that you're just not prepared to deal with. You don't have the life experience for. And I mean, even she goes to jail and she still doesn't have the same life experience. But she's old enough to understand that, okay, this thing that happened to me was not okay. And it happened because, one, what did we say? She's not great with making decisions. Two, what 16-year-old is good with making decisions? So I feel like she had a double whammy there. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I think about other children that I know of that have sort of experienced similar birth situations. And even if they grew up in loving and affectionate homes, Mm -hmm. are not always receptive of that love and affection. The separation from one's primary caregiver, even at a very young age, can affect the way a child's brain develops. And the, the thing is, you know, when you're talking about kids making stupid decisions especially if they're white kids, <laughs> there's a lot of forgiveness for them based on their age saying, yeah. Oh, they're just a kid. They're they don't kids. understand. And there's truth to that. Like mm-hmm. you have to hold the responsible adults in their lives responsible for mm-hmm. these actions. But at the same time, the minute these kids turn 18 or in Brown's case, and in many children, girls of color yeah uh, who are younger and not of age you have to age it pretty quickly they exactly they're sort of expected to be adults and Mm -hmm. behave as adults without ever having learned how to do that it's like oh the minute you turn 
18 or the minute you turn 16 or the minute whatever, you're expected to know how to behave as an adult. Mm -hmm. You're responsible for all your actions. For behaviors that you never were taught were inappropriate Mm -hmm. or whatever the case. I mean, I'm not saying Brown didn't know killing someone was wrong. Yes. But there was maybe sort of contemplating the full penalty for her actions actions. Mm -hmm. wasn't there. So we're going to talk a little bit about Johnny Allen. So I know that victim shaming is frowned upon. However, this dude was creepy. So Johnny Allen was a divorced real estate agent. He was also a youth pastor, Sunday school teacher, and he typically worked with homeless youth. We call him like a pillar of the community. Yeah. Once I started reading like youth pastor, I was like, I've heard this on plenty of other podcasts where they talk about someone who was labeled as a pillar of the community. Mm-hmm. That's always a bad thing. Yeah, right. right. You know, you, you set it up as a good thing. And and look, he was killed. We're not trying to, you know, as you said, we're not trying to blame the victim. Yeah. We just want to kind of make aware some of his role in this entire mm-hmm. situation. Like this, everything's not black and white. As we said before, there is definitely gray areas and this is a gray area like he definitely didn't deserve to die but what were his intentions yeah i mean his his friends and family denied any claims that alan was looking for sex but it seems strange that she would be in this situation Mm -hmm. if it weren't for that they alleged that he was trying to help her because that was his passion as a man of god he was found dead in his bed. Why was she there if he was in his bed? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Naked I am too, not so. the lawyer. I am yeah. not, the, you know, I'm not here to, again, we're not here to victim blame. Mm-hmm. We just want to sort of paint a broader picture of his involvement. In the court documents, there's actually another minor who is a waitress at a local restaurant And she claimed that she and other young teens at the restaurant felt uncomfortable whenever they had to serve Alan. The waitress who testified for the court said that he would hit on teens regularly. Of course, he didn't deserve to die for this, but it kind of makes you think, has he done this before? Has he picked up younger prostitutes? Could he have been using this homeless youth group as a victim pool? It just makes you wonder. I mean, obviously, this is all speculation on 100%. our part, but it, like you said, it definitely makes you wonder. All right, so let's talk about other things that were going on around the same time as this case. Like, what, what sort of, what are some of the other factors that played into this case and so on? So, much later on, after she sentenced, years, years later, I think she spends like 10 years in jail i mean a total of 15 before she was released but but in 2017 brown's lawyers appealed the case they brought in so many experts to talk about the fetal alcohol syndrome because it was was a pretty big deal like that stuff wasn't thought of before they didn't do any research into it Mm -hmm. to see how that could actually impact her so they were attempting to prove that she had a mental defect and if you watch the documentary they do show the experts reporting you know, about how she had this mental defect and that she was close to having, like, mental retardation. And she just cries. She's crying as this is being said about her. Because, you know, you have to feel, you know, like, these experts are, like, really hammering away at the fact that your mom drank, your mom did drugs, this is what it did to you. And she's just sitting there kind of just, like, wiping away tears because it's, like... 
It's also, hard to hear those things. I think it's weird, too, that, you know, you want your innocence proven, but at what cost? Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, she is being, even by her own lawyers, sort of Berated. torn apart. Yeah. Tennessee law has changed since 2004, and minors can no longer be charged and sentenced as prostitutes. Woohoo. I mean, that seems insane that this wasn't always the case. Uh, right? But I, each state has its own age of consent, and anything under that uh, would or should be a crime on the part of the person sexually assaulting the minor yeah i think you know once you anything under 18 has got to be like sexual assault yeah although in some states it is 16 is the age of consent well that can vary it um it still seems that as you said the the age of consent in tennessee was 18 18 yeah and so clearly she was under 18 i wonder why they even pursued I mean, you have to pursue a case that's murder. But why didn't they take that into considera- consideration? Like, 18 is the, is the rule, and she was 16, and he brought her home for sex. They, they, always, they never denied that. So, like, it was always listed, he brought her home for sex. She was 16. The age of consent is 18. We have a problem here in this case, right? Yeah, like, but again, it goes back to the fact that she was not white. It really does. I mean, we, we, it, it's infuriating. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's infuriating. It's frustrating. It, but it's so true. How many times have young teenage black boys been tried as adults? Yeah. Time and absolutely. time again. Hmm. And I honestly think that her race had a huge role mm-hmm. to play in the fact that she was tried as an adult. Now, you said Tennessee said that anyone who committed murder at that time First degree murder was tried as an adult. Any juveniles. Yeah, I would like to actually look at those numbers. You mean in terms of how many people have been tried for murder? Yeah, like break it down by race and see exactly how many juveniles Mm -hmm. were pushed up to adulthood. And then the sentencing was an adult type sentencing versus a juvenile. I wonder how many kids were even charged with first degree murders. Like, I guess that would like lower the number there. I mean, we would hope those numbers would be low to begin with. I'm not familiar with Tennessee's numbers on that. I'm not even familiar with New York's numbers on that, but yeah, I, I think they're, uh, I'm not sure we would like what we found. That's all. That's frustrating and terrible. All right. So while all this is happening, filmmaker Dan Berman was sharing videos with the press of the film that he was working on about Brown. So he was bringing in a camera crew and like interviewing her through through like seven years. So he's bringing her story to the light. It goes from local news to national news. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's all on Twitter. Celebrities like Rihanna, LeBron James, Snoop Dogg, they're all start tweeting to advocating for her freedom. There's the hashtag Free Centoya. And it's just bringing more and more eyes to the case. And that's when I first heard about it. I was going to say, I was going to ask you that. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it does speak to the power of Twitter. Now, yeah. listen, Twitter can be terrible. It mm. can be a terrible, terrible cesspool of humanity, as it's can so all social media. But there are some positive things that it brings to light. And I think this is one of them. You know, Me Too is another one. Yeah. I mean, the Me Too movement was originally founded by a black woman, Tarana Burke. It didn't gain attention beyond a specific circle until it 
spread through Twitter as a hashtag and then light was brought to Burke's project. So there is something to be said about Twitter bringing these movements and these messages mm-hmm. to a wider public, but uh, it's also just, as you say, frustrating to even have to to get to that point because we're not listening to these black women in the first yeah. place. I mean, there wasn't much press on it outside of Tennessee until Twitter. Yeah, yeah exactly. And this is a big case. You think that we would there'd be a blip somewhere, but like not much of anything. Also, again, I don't know how much attention I was paying to the news and all. I that mean, time. yes, we can take some of our own responsibility for how much or how little we paid attention to the news at that point in our lives. But at the same time, there is something to be taken into consideration about which stories get made True. national. Some things are on the front page and some things are, you know, page nine all the way in the back. Yeah. yeah. So it was around the same time that Brown filed for clemency, which just means that she's asking for the penalties to be lightened, not removed. So her criminal record would remain. You know, she wasn't looking to clear this record. She knew that she was guilty and she understood that. But with the new evidence of the fetal alcohol syndrome and the minor prostitute law changing in Tennessee, the stars were kind of aligning to suggest that maybe the sentence she received wasn't the appropriate sentence Mm -hmm. for her experience. Yeah, like we should take another look at this maybe since all these things are changing. Yeah. So in March of 2018, the Tennessee Board of Parole held a hearing on Brown's clemency petition and apparently this is super rare and no 2%. doubt. 2%. Wow. 2% people who apply for uh, clemency get a hearing. Wow. And like, I think that you can completely thank Twitter for that. I don't think she would have gotten this hearing without that. Yeah. I mean, the press coverage and the Twitter mm-hmm. sort of. It's a big error on it. Yeah. It, it definitely helped with all of this. The board spoke to Brown herself. They spoke to her lawyers, the prison staff, and some of her teachers also spoke on her behalf. So in January of 2019, Haslam, the governor at the time, commuted Brown's sentence to 15 years, time served, but she'll be on parole for the next 10. Brown was later released from prison on August 7th of 2019. I get that the wheels of justice turned slowly, but can you imagine how on the edge of her seat she must have been? The first hearing was in March of 2018. She basically waited a year to hear yes or no. Like, I don't think I could have made that. I mean, I guess if you're thinking about a year out of 51 years. True. It's a a way to look at that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a long time. And as you said before, she was lucky to even have that hearing. Incredibly lucky. So I guess waiting a year for it is not a huge deal. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you... you're definitely not the kind who would make it in prison. So uh. I would not. I don't like small <laughs> spaces. I don't like other people. The uniforms, the food. I would. I would never. The potential abuse. I don't know. Like, would it? Be, yeah. Would people be nice? I would be worried that people wouldn't be nice to me. No, I don't think they would. No. I mean, but see, what if it's not like? What if people in prison are like super sweet, like a ladies' prison? <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. I mean, look, everything is not orange is the new black. I know. For better or for worse. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see it as a place that's very trusting and where you're going to develop 
positive relationships. But to be fair, I've never been there, so I can't really speak to it. So, like, I don't even, I'm not even worried about, like, developing a relationship. I just, like, want to be left alone. And that's all I would aim for every day. Just, like, please leave me alone. I just don't think that I would do well there. And I hope to never, never end up there. So, not to forget the victim himself. I mean, again, victim of murder. She is, I would argue that Brown is also a victim. Yes, She's I would a victim too. of sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. She's a victim of, uh, you know, sexual advances. Abuse. Of various things. Yeah. But we, we do want to throw back to the idea that Johnny Allen is also a victim here. There's actually a memorial Facebook page page called friends of johnny allen and on this page they wrote a post the day after brown was released that said our hearts are broken today as the governor has decided to grant johnny's murderer clemency the activist mob with their repetition of centoya's lies and slander managed to prevail against justice and i i just think it's important to bring up that side of things as well i mean this is a case where brown did and admitted to killing Alan. Mm-hmm. That is not in question here. No, not at all. What is what makes her sort of a candidate for our big reputation podcast is that there's more to the story than was mm-hmm. initially considered in 2004. So since Brown has been released, she's conducted various interviews about her experiences, including insights and critiques on the criminal justice system. So she's also been invited as the keynote speaker for different groups across the U.S. and has shared her story with surviving sex trafficking and domestic abuse. She's referred to many today as an advocate and an activist and has even been invited by the ACLU to lead their national campaign that urges state governors to use their executive power of clemency to combat systemic injustice and racism. Brown published her memoirs for the years that she was in prison, and it was released in 2019. There's also an unauthorized documentary, Murder to Mercy, the Sintoya Brown story that was produced by Netflix. Now, Brown has publicly stated that she was not involved in this project, but she does hope that they're able to bring a positive light to the issues around her case. Brown and her husband also founded a nonprofit organization, the Foundation for Justice, Freedom, and Mercy, or the JFAM Foundation, with the aim to empower individuals who are at risk for exploitation from the involvement of the criminal justice system. Brown also spreads awareness about sex trafficking and her case in particular. She wants people to recognize when they're the victim. She states that she did not consider herself a victim for a long time. I mean, again, I think a lot of that has to do with the passing of time and our better understanding of the situation that that women are put in, especially when they're trafficked. I mean, she didn't understand that she was a victim, not just of Alan's and his desires for a sexual partner, but also of cutthroat. Of cutthroat and and his demands on her life. I mean, she supported the two of them when she was sixteen years old with her prostitution money. Like, and I believe he is twenty five. So he just got this. Why is that not a whole other issue? Yeah. (laughs) 
what did you take away from learning about Cyntoia Brown and her case? For me, it was the generational trauma and how it just snowballed Hmm. and how her and her mother kind of ended up in the same position. Like they were both 16, her mom's 16, addicted to drugs, having a baby. And Cyntoia was 16 in jail. Brown's grandmother's life was terrible. Brown's life was much worse. Like, I just feel like families need to do better with each other and not be so, especially Brown families. Uh, They need to stop being so resistant to therapy and change. And I'm also a big believer of like cutting ties on people and family. Like just because your family is blood doesn't give them permission to hurt you. Yeah. So you can focus on the family that you build, your friends, your family. You can always move outside of that. Honestly, your, your sort of generational trauma takeaway reminds me of this book that I'm reading right now. I haven't finished it yet, so I don't Mm. know how it's going to turn out. I'm actually kind of nervous about the turn it just took when I'm in it, but it's called America's dream Mm -hmm. and it's by Esmeralda Santiago. It's one of her works of fiction and it tells the story of this woman, America, who's 30 years old and her mother had her out of wedlock. I forget if she was a, a victim of rape or what the case was, but she had her when she was 15 years old she got the mom got pregnant when she was 14 had her at 15 america ran off with this guy when she was 14 got pregnant had a kid when she was 15 and that daughter also ran off when she was 14 and and so and she says you know like what what should i have done to stop this from happening Mm -hmm. and and so there is sort of that like beating yourself up over it but how do you make those changes? And and a big part of the problem was that she stayed connected to the father of her daughter who was an abusive man. And mm-hmm. so she didn't have a healthy relationship that she was able to demonstrate to her daughter. Yeah. And and so there's, there's a lot of this cyclical issues that come up with that, I think. So I don't know. It just reminded me of that book. This is worth checking out. I mean, I so that. far, I, I still have like, 80 pages to go. So <laughs> I, I would say for me, the takeaway was that people's life stories and life experiences are not so black and white. While what Brown did was clearly murder and mm-hmm. wrong. It seems as though there was a lot more to the story than just a teenager trying to steal money from this guy and killed him in order to get that money. Like there, yeah. there was a lot more to it. We have to take into consideration You know, I think your comment on generational trauma is crucial. Issues of racism, issues of um, sexism and abuse, all of these things, the fetal alcohol syndrome, all of these factors played into this case and were maybe not considered in the same light as they were or as they would be today. Yeah. All right, so before we sign off, we want to share a couple of resources and references with you. Now, we're going to put a handful of them in the show notes, but we just wanted to share a couple of them with you now. The first one is Me Facing Life, Centoya Story. That's a documentary done by PBS. Mm-hmm. Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System, a memoir by Brown herself. So those, I think those are two good ones to share here with you verbally because... She was involved in each of those projects. Now, we mentioned the Netflix 
documentary before, which she was not involved in, but hoped that it did justice to her story. And there'll be a few other references as well that we'll cite. What do you think? Share your thoughts with us. Do you have any suggestions for women we could cover in future episodes? Follow the podcast on Twitter at BigRepPod and Instagram at BigReputationsPod. Send us messages or emails at BigReputationsPod at gmail.com. We'd love to include your thoughts on a future episode. Be sure to subscribe to us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. Honestly, the five-star reviews are what help us beat the algorithms and get listened to by, by larger audiences. And make us feel good about ourselves. Yeah, honestly. I Who mean, doesn't want five stars? Isn't that why we do a podcast? <laughs> All right. So at the end of each episode, let's sign off with a little, little motto or some words of wisdom. What do you got? So I'm not wise, so I steal mine from other wise women. And Rihanna once said... No one can understand what you're feeling unless they burn the way you've burned. I think that's really fitting for today's topic. Yeah. Cheers. I'm going to stick with the same words from episode to episode. I'm going to keep it simple. Believe women. Believe women.